0: Welcome to our teleconference discussion today on options for employers and employees, for employers to consider for their employees, and for employees to consider when there have been layoffs. Uh, Joining me today are Joel Janovich, our member, and who's been with the firm for over a decade, and Allison Terry, another brilliant colleague of mine, who's been with the firm for at least half a dozen years, uh, both focus on a lot of non-immigrant related issues as well as certain complex immigration issues. Of course, I uh, forgot to mention that I am Sheila Musi, President and CEO of the Musi Law Firm, and we are honored and delighted to welcome each of you today for our conversation and discussion about layoffs. As most of us are aware from listening to the news, Uh, Watching TV, a number of prominent U.S. employers, tech companies in particular, have had massive layoffs, leaving thousands of their employees um, having to scramble around during the holiday season looking for a job. But in addition to the normal pain that every employee faces with a layoff, the problems and issues for non-immigrant visa holders – like, example, those on H or L or TN, uh, is obviously more complicated because they have to figure out status-related issues uh, on top of all of the other issues regarding paying bills and you know figuring things out and finding a new job. So in today's discussion, we will discuss those options, uh, whether you're an employer wanting to understand the process to be able to transition and help your employees, or if you're an employee that's been directly impacted and you've been laid off, you would like to understand, so what are my options and where do I go from here? So everybody, of course, talks about the 60-day grace period, right? How does it work? Well, this is, of course, one of the best and most used options uh, for those who have been impacted by layoffs. And if you remember, it wasn't that long ago. It was only implemented as a final rule literally on President Barack Obama's last day in office on January 17th of 2017, which to me is kind of shocking because that's just like not even like just about five years ago. And so before that, people didn't even have a single one-day grace period. The day you lost your job, you were technically out of status and had to go figure things out or depart the United States. Now you have this 60-day grace period, which under the regulation allows the employee – to be considered to be maintaining the prior status, so if it's H-1B, still in H-1B, in order to be able to file a new petition, whether it's a change to change to with a new employer or change status to become the dependent, etc., after the, the person's last day, so, so stopping to work, right, the, the last day of employment. And so the regulation itself mentions 60 days after the cessation of the employment but the exact term cessation of employment is actually not in and of itself defined in the regulation, but generally it is considered to be the last working day. Um, and so we're going to analyze and discuss what that means because a lot of people, employees get other options to you know stay, et cetera. So usually an employee will get 60 days up until the end of the I-94 corporation date, whichever is the earlier date or the shorter date. And during that 60-day so-called grace period, right, that we now have, the employee cannot work or otherwise violate the status. They must have been maintaining the prior status until that date of losing that employment. The 60-day grace period is now available for people on E1, E2, E3, if you remember our Australians, similar to H1, H1B1, one b which is most of us, H1B1, which is Singapore and Chile, L1s, O1s, which are outstanding people, L1s, of course, intercompany transferees, and the TN, which is for Canadians and Mexicans and their dependents. If the foreign national, if your employee is then able to, or if you're the employee, if you are able to file another petition or change on an application like H4 or H1B, within the 60 days, meaning that the case is actually receipted and received by the U.S. CIS before within that 60-day, then you are considered to be in status and you will be eligible for an extension or change of non-immigrant status. So that's like a quick overview. Now I'm going to invite my esteemed colleague, Joel, who I just introduced to you. So what are the kinds of cases? In the extension of status, for example, Joel, how does the process work?
1: Sure. Uh, so the most cost, so this is something that I think a lot of employers and employees um, are familiar with, especially in the H-1B context, um, because even without layoffs, people certainly are familiar with uh, H-1B changes, change of employers petitions, and almost always, the vast majority of the time, whenever you're changing an employer, you're also including there an extension um, for the H-1B status. So, um, And for, for other visa categories, other work visa categories like um, L1, for instance, it is possible to do the extension, but, of course, it's a lot more limited. Um, you, you're, you're not e- easily able to change employers with an L1. Um, most times it just is not feasible um, based on the, their criteria. But um, the basic requirements are that you need to file the extension. If you're doing an extension, you need, you need to file the extension, the status, during the grace period. And so the grace period is normally going to be sixty days or the I-94 expiration date, whichever comes first. Um, and that time period is considered status. So during that, let's assume you have the full sixty days, that during that sixty days, you are in status. Um, you're not authorized to work for anyone other than the the employer that probably presumably just laid you off. Um, but during that period, um, a new employer can file a change of employer for you along with the extension. Um, and for H1B workers in particular, they can start working based upon the filing of that change of employer, uh, just as they can when they're moving, you know, without a gap in employment, um, from one employer to another, um, during, again, during that grace period, even before, obviously, you've filed the extension, you can interview, you can look for jobs. Um, that six-day period, other than not being able to work, um, you can, um, you know, if, you, you know, obviously, it's designed, if need, need be, to wrap up the affairs to leave the country. But if the goal is to remain in the U.S., um, you find that other age from the employer, you can file the petition during that period of time. Um, and, uh, the next thing, the, the next option, obviously, is if you're not able to find a new employer. And uh, again, we're seeing this a lot with H-1B workers, um, given the, the, the sudden burst of layoffs that we've had in, in, the, in recent months. The next option, of course, is a change of status. Um, similar to an extension of status during the grace period, since you're still in status, you can file that uh, change of status before the end of your grace period. So as long as you file it with USCIS, arrived at the USCIS um, prior to the extent, prior to the end of your grace period while you're still in status, you can file for a change of status. Now, what status that's going to be is going to depend on the circumstances. If you have a spouse here and the spouse is in a principal work visa status, so for instance, if you're in an H-1B and so is your spouse, or if your spouse is on L-1 or T-N, you can file for a change of status to become a dependent. So H4, L2, et cetera. Um, That's not going to be an option for everyone, obviously. So then you can look at the other possibilities. Um, One possibility certainly could be trying to do, do a move to B2 status, um, B2 visa, which is a a visitor visa, a tourist visa, essentially. Um, If you're going to do a change to B2, it's, Again, it may just be because you need more time to wrap up your affairs to, to buy a little bit of extra time. But in filing the extension, you can do so um, requesting up to six, six months generally. Um, and frankly, with current processing times, it, it's not unusual to see a change of status to be too filed requesting a six-month uh, period of time, and by the end of that six-month period, that extension or that, that that change of status application is still pending just because of how long USCIS is taking and there's no premium processing. But once you have filed that change of status, you are permitted to remain in the U.S. based on that pending application. Um, and keep in mind that with the B2, you're going to have to show that you have sufficient funds to cover your expenses. You're going to have to show that you're you're trying to remain for a valid purpose that it is purely non-immigrant intent. So unlike H-1B and L-1, which allow for dual intent, you can't be trying to remain here with the intentions of applying for a green card right now. Um, And obviously, for most categories that you can move to, you're probably not going to have work authorization. There are some exceptions. Um, The L-2 spouse has work authorization automatic uh, upon approval. And, you know, there there are a few exceptions like that. But for the most part, this isn't going to give work authorization. Obviously, um, if you're moving potentially to F1 as a student, in certain cases, F1 students can get things like CPT, um, and that may be another consideration. But ultimately, the process for moving to to one of those other statuses, it's the same type of uh, change of status application that would be filed.
0: Thank you, Joel. I think that was a very nice, comprehensive, helpful overview for people to understand the process uh in general how the process works but now we're going to invite you Allie to talk a little bit about the actual processing of the file how, what do you include in the filing how do you document the 60 day grace period those kinds of issues because a lot of people who are in this predicament really you know want to understand the process may not be able to hire a law firm or an attorney or even if they do it's always i always say knowledge is power so use that knowledge to understand so that they can start getting their documents and
2: paperwork in honor. Take it away, Allie. Sure, Sheila. So, like you mentioned earlier, right, this is a fairly, in the grand scheme of things, a fairly new regulation, and there hasn't been a ton of guidance, really any, from USCIS about what they want to see. Uh, most of this is just stuff that we've kind of picked up in practice and have found that have worked. And quite frankly, it's the simpler the better. A 60-day grace period filing is just a normal filing with some extra icing on the cake, is how I like to explain it. So, uh, you know, like with any filing, you need to show maintenance of status, right? I'm asking for an extension or a change of status, so I must show that I have status. That always, almost always includes, for the types of cases we're talking about, going to be your two most recent pay stubs. Even if those two most recent pay stubs are before a layoff, you're going to want to include those because the 60-day grace period regulation requires that you're maintaining status up until the beginning of that 60 days. So your pay subs are gonna help show that. Uh, Another important piece we like to include is some kind of documentation from the previous employer, if we can get our hands on it, right? This is typically something that a lot of them call a relieving letter. Sometimes we'll issue an experience letter right off the bat. Even if you can get an email that's says the last date of employment because we want to show USCIS, hey, the 60-day grace period started on this day, right? Um, if you can't get that, you can certainly file without it. It's something that I always recommend if they're not giving it right away, maybe keep working on it in case USCIS does issue a request for evidence looking for more information to prove the 60-day grace period. Uh, I've had cases where we filed with affidavits if we can't get documentation, things like that. Uh, The last piece that kind of goes into the status part of the 60-day grace period is, and you would include this really with any filing, your most recent I-94, because the 60-day grace period is limited by the I-94. So you need to show USCIS either, hey, look, my I-94 is valid more than 60 days, or maybe I only have 40 days and I'm still within that window. Uh, You want to show it and lay it out for them. And what I always recommend, too, is to either on the attachment page or if you include an extra page uh, in your filing, to put in a brief. It can be two to three sentences. The person was working for this employer based off of this petition. Uh, The employment ended on this day. Their I-94 is valid until this day. They're in the 60-day grace period. Just to let USCIS know why you're including what you are, Uh, the vast majority of the time USCIS understands. Um, it's a fairly straightforward regulation, but I like to spoon-feed them when we can. Um, and that's not it. Other than that, it's a pretty straightforward standard H-1B or change of status, whatever whatever you're going for type of filing.
0: Thank you, Allie. Terrific. Good job. So the, the question that's often asked of us and probably is like, hey, it's almost impossible to be able to, interview, find a job, have the new employer get their act together, find your attorney because there's so much going on. It's the holidays, what have you. It's not that easy. People are taking time off from work. And, um, you know, a lot of employers need time and then the LCA takes time to, to get back. And even to just for the larger companies, by the time you're done with levels of series of interviews, You probably won't even get a job for two or three or four months. So what if the person then is unable to or cannot file the change of status or the extension within the 60-days grace period? What happens? What are the options for you as the employee wanting to or having to go through the process, right? So there's something that we talk about which we refer to as NPT or NUNC pro-tunc, which in Latin means – now for then, right? Now, we want something now, but as if it was back. So we really want to kind of give, get an answer today for something that we couldn't file back then for a variety of reasons. And that's the exception written into the law that allows the foreign national to file and request the extension of stay or the, 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 the change of status, even if the person is not in status when filing, But there are certain requirements in order to qualify for the non pro chunk NPT. What are those? One, it's to explain that the failure to file while you were in status was due to extraordinary circumstances beyond the control, beyond your control, the control of the applicant or the petitioner. And the delay, so if it's several weeks or months of delay versus a few days of delay, is commensurate with the circumstances. Second, the foreign national needs to establish that the person has not otherwise violated her or his non-immigrant status. Third, the foreign national continues to remain a bona fide non-immigrant. Again, as we said, this could be a potential problem if you're starting your green card case and you're trying to get a B1, B2, or an F1 student, which are pure non-immigrant statuses compared to, for example, an L1, and H1, and H4 where you don't need to establish the non-immigrant intention, but you still have to establish the bona fides of your status. And fourth, that the foreign national is not subject to any type of deportation or removal proceedings, right? So if you can meet those and you're able to send it in, now remember, non-protank is a discretionary approval or discretionary process, meaning that the USCIS may review your factors, may look at your arguments, but they don't have to say, yep, okay, do you qualify under these four criteria, so we're going to approve it? No, it's not that way, right? Because it's not required for them to grant this required discretionary approval. If they believe that even if all the elements have been satisfied, they could say that's not good enough for whatever reason. They generally take that into account. And in the layoff scenario, what we've also seen, the argument is that the layoff – if it, generally in the layoff, we've been able to argue that obviously it was beyond the control of the employee or the new employer or the applicant changing to another status like age four. The, the layoff and then to that if we add sympathetic factors, sometimes you have young children, you have a spouse, you have a child who's dealing with a medical complication, a spouse who's dealing with a complication, health-wise or a family situation, We try to add all that into the mix to explain the serious financial, emotional, and other impact on the family um, and possible separation issues, health concerns, etc., for you to keep in mind. So so all is not lost if you can't find something within the 60 days, though obviously, ideally, you'd really want to push hard, even if it's to just file something like a B2 to buy yourself a little bit of time. So that has disadvantages because you can't switch from B2 to H1 and start working because then your portability provisions of the H1B portability laws don't apply. Um, so I'm going to have uh, maybe, uh, Joel, you jump in to explain how the processing actually works for a Nung proton
1: Sure. Um, so in, in order to request a Nung Tunk. Um, case to be approved. The good news is it actually, the, the general process is identical to any other change of status or extension of status application. There's no separate form. There's no specific wording you have to use. Um, if you, you know, as an attorney, when I'm filing these, I, of course, I'm citing the regulation, I'm listing the, the requirements, but even that's not required. Technically speaking, if you never even mention Nung Pro Tung or, or cite the regulation, USCIS has the ability to grant this on its own. Um, but obviously, if you're, if you are at least indicating it and making the argument, perhaps you have a, uh, you're going to have a much better chance of getting getting USCIS to approve it. Um, and as Sheila mentioned, there are four basic prongs um, that, four basic requirements that have to be met. They're a little bit different if it's an extension of status versus a change of status, but ultimately they're they're almost identical. And and the only prong that you're typically, in most cases, making, spending any time on is the first one, which is the same for both, um, which is that you're showing that these were extraordinary circumstances beyond your control. And when you file the petition, you're making the argument based on the specifics of your fact pattern. Um, so as long as you can provide that information, again, you, we may, you may include it as a memo, you may include it as part of the form, um, but there's no special additional thing that you have to include in there for, for a separate case that you're requesting. It's part of the same petition or part of the same application that you're filing. Um, now, the There are some drawbacks to the non-proton, which Sheila also alluded to, which is frankly that it is discretionary. Uh, and so, even if you have a, a good case and a good argument, you meet you meet the basic criteria, an officer can disagree and deny it, and they have that ability, they have that right. And um, when you're filing these, you have to kind of go in with the understanding that that's a possibility. Um, Filing the non-protunk request does not protect your status. So almost, you know, by definition, you're out of status at the time you're filing in, in general with the non-protunk request. And um, if USAIS approves it, it essentially, in most cases, is going to solve the, the problem retroactively. But if they deny it, you weren't protected just because the case is filed and pending during that time. Um, and that can be especially problematic where the person's I-94 has expired and they're accruing unlawful presence. And in a situation like that, there there can be consequences, especially if you reach past the 180-day point, where you can become, if it's denied, you can become subject to an automatic bar to reentry and some some other issues like that. So, um, and given that there's no premium processing for. Um, in, for change of status to things like H4 or F1 or B2, these cases sometimes will be pending for months. And so these are things that you kind of need to talk with your attorney about to figure out, okay, well, what do I do in this situation? Um, so it, it is, there, again, there's, it's a great uh, benefit when it's approved and it's a great option um, when you need to use it, but um, there are some, some real risks and drawbacks here.
0: Thank you, Joel, and yes, I think it comes to a very, very complicated issue, like we said, especially if the I-94 card has expired and the unlawful presence and the three-year and ten-year bars are triggered that Joel just referenced and referred to, because you definitely don't want to have to deal with those because those complicate it way more than if you have an I-94 that's still valid, even if it's denied, then it's effective possibly from the date of the denial as opposed to the date of the filing, depending on when it was filed. So the whole issue of being out of status versus ULP or unlawful presence is actually a fairly complicated analysis and the USCIS has certainly uh, exceptions when they will not start or trigger the uh, three-year and 10-year bars and there are times when they will. So to consult, to discuss, to understand the implications by discussing with an immigration lawyer obviously it will have its benefits and you can certainly read up a lot of free articles on multi.com that explain some of these <laughs> concepts, as well as the importance of understanding it. I've also had some people say, you know, especially the person when they traveled and they came back, and there was a shorter I 94, and now you've lost how to delay off to complicate all of this. What happens? Some lawyers choose not to even mention, you know, use the original date of the I 94. So there's ways in which you potentially could try to issue in a manner to protect yourself and your family so that your status isn't there isn't a red flag because one person in the family traveled and has a passport that's expiring earlier so again they're very uh it can be very complicated very nuanced issues and unlawful presence is something we don't nobody should want to mess with because it will impact not just your status and coming back but your ability to ultimately get your 485 approved In the United States, if you've been unlawfully present or you're subject, you've triggered bars um, and you're mandated to go live abroad for certain periods of time, like three years or ten years, if you're out of status for 180 days or one year or longer. Um, So, keeping that aside, Ali, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit maybe to discuss this whole issue about, okay, now I'm afraid I won't get the status, there's out of status, I'll probably get a denial or I've got a denial. What are my options? I do I have to travel abroad and re enter? How does that work? Why can't I just you know, get it here? Why does the USCIS sometimes not attach the I 94 card? Sometimes they attach it, extending the status. Explain some of those concepts to our audience.
2: Absolutely. So, like we touched on, right, there are some times where maybe outside considerations make nunc fur tunk not an option, or it's too much of a risky option and someone doesn't want to do it, right? If you're a crew of unlawful presence, You may just want to say, I'm going to cut my losses. I'm going to go back to my home country or another country, hang out so I can come back. Um, That could be maybe you filed a non-protong case, right? And USCIS didn't want to use their discretion. And they maybe, let's say it's an H-1B. Maybe they approved your petition, but they didn't approve that request for status. So in order to get in status, and then in order to be able to work and do all that good stuff, you're going to have to travel, come back on an H-1B visa, and get yourself back into status that way. So for a lot of people, right, this isn't ideal. A lot of the people we're talking about here, their main goal, they've been here maybe for 8 years, 10 years, 15 years or plus, and their life is here, right? So leaving the U.S. isn't always their favorite option. It's not ideal, but sometimes it's the only one you've got. So if that is your only option, uh, what you're looking at is departing the U.S., right, go back to usually for most people it's going to be their home country, maybe a country where they have – They have access to. So uh, the reason this kind of works if you're filing from, let's say, outside the US is when you're filing for consular processing, status is no longer an issue. Uh, It's not a question, it's not really relevant. So this layoff and all of that stuff kind of becomes a non issue for getting it approved for the most part. The main, I would say, drawback for this right now and what we've seen a lot is visa stamping. Um, Visa stamping is really difficult to get right now, mainly because there's just a lot of backlogs. You know, the wait times for appointments are sometimes months out. Uh, In years past, you know, go take a quick trip to Canada, get your stamp there. Sometimes that doesn't work now. Um, What we recommend, and what I have been telling people is you are allowed to go to visa stamping in a third party country that's not your home country, generally across the board. Uh, With COVID though, there have been more restrictions on which countries are allowing these, if they're allowing all people from third party countries, if they're limiting them, things like that. So contact the specific consulate. So let's say you're a citizen and national of India and you need to go for stamping and there's no appointments for months. Well, maybe you wanna call and see if there's a consulate in Singapore you can get into and maybe they have a sooner appointment, but you wanna check and make sure they're taking those appointments because sometimes they are not. Um, it's a very consulate specific So there's no one rule across the board at this point. Keep in mind, one thing here to keep in mind, I always tell people, is that you do not have to have valid non-immigrant status. You have to have an H-1B, a TN, an L to work for a U.S. company from outside the U.S. So, uh, you know, maybe you have to leave, you get a U.S. employer, you can't get visa stamping for six months. But if their business model allows it, if your work allows it, you could work from outside the U.S., begin working, and so you can get a visa stamp and come in. There may be tax implications to that that you need to look into, keep in mind, but it is something that may help in the job hunting process. Another thing to keep in mind is that if you have a valid visa stamp, particularly in cases like an H-1B visa holder, if you have a valid visa stamp that's good until, let's say, 2024, and you get a new H-1B approval for consular processing, you don't need to go to visa stamping. You can use that valid visa in your passport and your new approval notice and enter on that basis. So for some people who are getting laid off, but maybe they recently traveled and they've got a visa stamp good for another three years, you may not be looking at this issue of, am I gonna have to wait forever to be able to get my visa stamp? So that's something to keep in mind to check on. Do keep in mind, though, that that won't work for all visa categories. So, for example, Mexican TN, you would have to get a new visa stamp. You're not allowed to use a visa stamp from another employer. And then one other thing I would just add at the end, because I get this question multiple times a week, if you're on H-1B and this happens to you, and you depart the U.S. and you get a consular processing approval or you're looking at it, you don't need to go through the lottery again. Um, There's this misconception that, If I had a layoff or a denial or something like that, or I have to file a case for consular processing, am I going to be subject to the lottery again? Am I no longer cap exempt? That's not true. So you do not have to go through the lottery. You don't have to deal with the headache of cap. You're still cap exempt. They just need to file a normal petition for you asking for consular processing. So thank you, Allie, for that very helpful
0: overview and information. So the next issue we talk about, which, again, we haven't seen as often the USDI is being extremely generous about it, is something called the I-140 EAD based on compelling circumstances. Um, this was, again, something that was introduced under the same January 17, 2017, final rule, allowing for it. Uh, there are st- strict requirements in order to be able to even throw in an application to apply for it. To qualify the person, the employee needs to have an I-140 approved petition. Must, the person must be in a valid E3, H1B, H1B1, O1, or L1 status. So it's only these five categories. And if the person, let's say, for since we're talking about layoffs, the person's been laid off, they would need to apply for the compelling circumstances EAD before the end of the grace period. And in order to be able to provide evidence of compelling circumstances that justify an independent grant, so you have to actually submit that evidence to ask or to request and apply for the uscis to, for them to grant the the so-called independent work authorization or employment authorization, the EAD card. So the, the rule does not actually define what is a compelling circumstance. But it does list several circumstances or examples that potentially could qualify, including serious illness or disability, significant disruption to the employer, substantial harm to the applicant, right, or substantial. So we've used that at the multi Law Firm. In the beginning, we had some success. We got a few approvals. But then after that, we've talked to several other lawyers. The, the USCIS has been very, very... Um, not very generous with it, they've been very scarcely approving these kinds of compelling circumstance EADs. Also, the preamble to the regulation, which allows for compelling circumstance EAD, notes that unemployment in and of itself is generally not considered as a compelling circumstance. But in the case of the layoff, if the applicant can show that the unemployment would cause substantial harm, and then you can show The the impact on your family, the the impact on the employer, the disruption to the employer, to the new employer if you don't get this approval while you're waiting or what have you or your family members suffering serious illness or disability, we've actually been able to get that and work with that. Um, There's some other major drawbacks to this rule that I'm going to ask or invite Joel to talk about.
1: Sure. So um, when when we first heard about rumors of this rule and uh, you know we knew it was coming, but we didn't have any details back in 2015, everyone got very excited. Everyone thought, oh, I've got an approved I140, I can get an EAD, no problem. And once the rule actually came out and we started to see the details, it was very disappointing. Um, we actually at the time back in early 2016, we'd uh, sent in. Uh, from the Murphy Law Firm, our recommendation for the proposal, which was basically what we had hoped it would be, which would be allow virtually anyone with an I-140 to get an EAD. Um, A lot of people in the immigration community did so, but USCIS did not listen. Uh, In any case, uh, one of the big drawbacks of going through this program is, so you have to be in status at the time you file it, but in order to actually use it, you cannot be in status. You have to fall out of status. You're allowed to stay here uh, based on that uh, I-140 EAD, the compelling circumstances EAD, um, and work, but you are no longer in status. And what does that mean? Well, if you want to later on change back to H-1B status or adjust status to apply for your for your green card, um, you're likely going to have to leave the U.S. first, and you're either going to have to you you know usually you're going to have to go through the consulate. Um, return in non-immigrant status like H-1B, but you're not going to – it's going to be very tough to do that from within the U.S. Um, you can request it, kind of making that non-procunc argument that we mentioned before, but as we mentioned, it's discretionary, and given that, depending on the circumstances, USCS very well may deny that request. So um, that is a big drawback. Um, If it is approved, you know, uh, know, good news is the the spouse and even the kids can get the ADs as well. Um, It is valid for – it will generally be approved for one year. Um, And after that, it is possible that you could extend it, but only if the priority date for your I-140 is um, less than one year from the cutoff date listed in the Visa Bulletin. So. Again, this is a very restrictive program. There are cases we did see um, the beginning of the pandemic Sometimes There were circumstances we were able to get that approved. Um, those arguments are very unlikely to work now because, um, you know, maybe we're still in the pandemic, maybe we're not. But it's certainly not as it was back in early 20, uh, in early 2021. Um, but again, it's something to keep in mind. But unfortunately, it is not um It is not going to work for a great many people um, who are laid off, unfortunately.
0: Thank you, Joel. Uh, You know, here we always try to be sensitive to to having our discussions for between 30 and 45 minutes. We are right around the 40-minute mark, a little below. And we really want you to sort of understand, okay, here are my options. Here are where I see the gray areas. This is our other backup options. Uh, I don't understand how this works. Am I eligible for non-protonics? et cetera. So we wanted to just give you, share with you an overview to empower you, to educate you, to enlighten you, to give you some peace of mind. Knowledge is power, as we often, as I often say. And I am so honored to have with me my two esteemed colleagues, Jolianovich and Allison Terry, joining me for today's discussion to help you as you figure out this difficult uh, and complicated issue in a very stressful period of time. Uh, uh, in your life, and we certainly hope we have given you some tips, some ideas, some information to get you started on this process. Of course, if you ever need our help, don't hesitate to contact us at the Musi Law Firm. If we can help you, it would be our honor and pleasure, and with that, we want to take this opportunity to wish you, your loved ones, your families, Happy Diwali, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, hope you had a good Thanksgiving, you're ready for a new year that's round the corner, and may the new year bring much good fortune and happiness and health, good health to you and all your loved ones. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Joel Yanovich, Alison Terry, and our entire team at the Murthy Law Firm, we wish you a wonderful, happy holiday season and best wishes for the new year. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.